Jesus was colonized. Jesus was a political prisoner. Jesus was under the thumb, not only of Roman Empire, but of being dehumanized in his whole people. So how amazing is it that the one person who gets lifted up in all of Luke's gospel is also a brown colonized man? Welcome to The Collective Table, the ultimate female perspective on Jesus, justice, and joy with your hosts, Chelsea Simon, Dana Black, and Claire Watson. We're so glad that you're here for this seventh season called the Sermon Podcast Hour. During this season, Chelsea, Claire, and I are going to interview some of our favorite preachers about a sermon they've given. These sermons will be following the lectionary calendar from Epiphany all the way until Easter. In the various episodes, not only will you hear clips from the sermon, you will also get to hear the follow-up conversation with the preacher. Each preacher brings their own unique experiences, interpretations, and preaching styles. Our hope is to provide a well-rounded and expansive view of the scriptures, God, and ourselves. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Chelsea here. Today's episode features an important conversation with the passionate and thoughtful Miss Lisa Sharon Harper. Lisa is a prolific speaker, writer, and activist. She is the founder and president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation by designing forums and experiences that bring about common understanding, common commitment, and common action. Lisa writes extensively on shalom and governance, immigration reform, healthcare reform, poverty, racial and gender justice, climate change, and transformational civic engagement. Her most recent book entitled The Very Good Gospel explores God's intent for the wholeness of all relationships in light of today's headlines. In this episode, Lisa talks with Dana and I about Good Friday. We talk about empire. We talk about Jesus on the cross. We talk about oppression. We talk about shalom. Get ready, TCT listeners. This is a good one. Welcome, Lisa Sharon Harper. We are so, so excited to talk with you today. And today we actually have the honor of talking with you about a sermon as we look to the scripture found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 43, when Jesus on the cross replies to the criminal next to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And as you mentioned in the sermon, this scripture is typically read during Good Friday, But when you gave this sermon, it was November 2020. And my first question for you is, why did you feel the the need for this scripture to be preached about at this particular time? It was an interesting time in our country. And so I just wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Absolutely. Well, you know, when we think back to 2020, that was such a a huge year of transformation and transition in our nation's history Um, with the death of George Floyd. If you recall about uh, that week that he died, I think it was two days after he died, 123 cities were on fire across the country. I mean, it was really like we were we, we had reached the point where we said there's got to be change or else it's like change or bust. And so the church was really at that place and particularly the white church across the country was at a place where it was seeking it was it was 
more open than it had ever been. I think that that window, quite honestly, has largely closed. And in fact, there's been an entrenchment of opposition against that openness now with the all of the buzz about CRT and justice being a bad word and all those things. But that said, in that moment, in that window, there was a yearning to understand how did we get here? So when the Collins Summit, the folks who organized the Collins Summit in Northern California, which is where where I gave that talk that you um, listened to, when they asked me to to share and to, to speak for their church and then also as a keynote for their um, conference, I felt like the message that I had actually given the year before for Good Friday at Trinity UCC was actually the message that the white church needed now and the multi-ethnic church needs now. And why is that? Because that message of Jesus on the cross between the two, the two criminals, Jesus has already been whipped. Jesus has already been nailed to the cross. He's already been lifted up above the crowd where soldiers are now casting lots to divvy up his clothing. And he's hanging, he's hanging with on either side of him. He has two criminals hanging on either side. One berates him, chides him, tells him, do a miracle to prove that you are the Messiah. And then the other one rebukes the other criminal. Do you not fear God, he says? Then he says, Jesus, look, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We often think of them as, you know, people who did bad things, but oftentimes they were political prisoners who were put on the cross, who were crucified as a way to terrify the surrounding people, or they could have just stolen a loaf of bread, right? And somebody had it in for them and they were up on the cross as well. But definitely Jesus was a political prisoner on that, on that cross. And when it struck me, he's a brown man in a colonized people who the year he was born had tried to commit insurrection against Caesar and get themselves out from under the thumb of Caesar and had had 500 people crucified every day for several days by a Roman garrison that came through. That was the year he was born. And that colonization, the way that it worked was that it's all about claiming the land and extracting the resources and not giving people agency. And what we know about agency is that it is what it's central, integral to what it means to be human. So Jesus and Jesus's people were not allowed to be human. And so I, I just put him in his context, his political context, and then worked my way back through the scripture, really doing a scripture study and realized that the big question about who is this Jesus person was all the way through the gospel, especially from that point when Peter says, I know who you are. And Jesus says, hush, you know, hush child. Um, yeah, maybe that's what he's saying it now, right? And then every point, at every point in Luke's gospel, there's somebody asking, who is this person? Who is this person? And nobody ever has an answer. And you get then to the Sanhedrin and he's before the Sanhedrin and he doesn't answer their questions. He never, he never answers. And then the one person in the whole gospel of Luke who says, I know who you are. And Jesus is like, yes, is the criminal next to him on the cross. So this, this question of who is Jesus is central to the question of what is the good news. Who he is, 
is the good news. Now, the way that we have dumbed that down in our, what I would call, whiteified, colonized gospel, colonized Western Christianity, is that we have answered the question of who Jesus is as if Jesus did all of his work from Starbucks. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> right? Like, as if he did his work going between the malls and, you know, yeah. shuffling his kids between soccer practices. This is not Jesus. Right. Jesus was colonized. Jesus was a political prisoner. Jesus was under the thumb, not only of Roman Empire, but of being dehumanized in his whole people. So how amazing is it that the one person who gets lifted up in all of Luke's gospel as the one who sees and understands, by the way, that's my dog. <laughs> my dog, Babe, is here with me. Babe says, hi. The one person who gets it is also a brown colonized man who has lived his life under the thumb of empire. And I began to understand this man who's next to him on the cross and says to his friend, don't you get it? Aren't you afraid of God for taunting this man who has done nothing? I started to see him, especially speaking this the first time at Trinity UCC, which is an historically black church in the heart of Chicago. What if that man who might have stolen a loaf of bread or might even have killed somebody, what if he was like some of the young people who shoot up drugs or shoot up a block with their guns because they are numbing themselves or they have been so numbed by poverty and by by the lack of being able to exercise agency because of the systems and structures they bear on their back. What if that prisoner next to him is like them? And I think he yeah. is more like them than what we have in our mind, the young lad who, who steals a loaf of bread and ends up on the cross. That's That's not him. So I, I chose that passage because the moment that we were in, and I think we're still in, is a moment of rediscovering, re maybe re-meeting Jesus again for the very first time and understanding who he is. It makes me think just even now, when we think about that person next to Jesus on the cross, you're right, we've kind of dismissed it like, okay, it's just, it's somebody who stole something. Well, why? Why was that person on the cross? Right. They were a part of an oppressive system, just like how many people in this country are a part of an oppressive system and in poverty, trying to, to, to fight addiction. Why are they addicted? Because they're in a city. It's just connected for me right there. And we, we really don't talk about that at all. We really don't I have to tell you, my mom and I right now, now, you know, now we're not in 2020, we're in at the end of 2022. And, you know, we're kind of in that space. Some, well, they call it, they actually call it, uh, what do they call it? Um, in, in the Congress, it's the session that like, it's like this dead session, right? In, in our, in our family, you know, story, this is the time where people kind of rest. They kind of go into downtime or you might like tank up on your movies and that kind of thing. So we are, we are right now in the middle of a marathon run of the wire. <laughs> oh yes and i love the wire oh my gosh now obviously it's like you know it's got some it's not for the faint of heart <laughs> nope it's not and it's yes. certainly not for for anybody who is you know afraid of anything that is not holy but my god do the writers and the director um, and the actors what they do is they tell the story of how power is moved in our nation and in our cities and really globally and um, the, the, the genius of it is that they layer it. They, they start 
with the drug dealers, right? And then the next season, it's about the ports and the politicians. And then I don't know, because I haven't gotten to season three yet. So I don't know what season three is, but I, I've heard that they're layering it, right? And so that you get to every layer and all of a sudden you're like, wow, this is how it works in the last season. That is the situation that the criminal on the cross was under. That's what he was holding. And he was the little drug dealer, likely. And in that society and in this society, wow, they're so similar. Even those thousands of years have passed, we forget that these are complex systems that of power that keep people down and do it. You mentioned in the beginning of this that you, so you wrote this or you gave this in 2020 at a time that you felt like, okay, especially the white church could, could hear this, that door has shut two years later where how can you talk a little bit more about that and what you think just talk a little bit more about that well isn't it funny i mean 2020 we saw all that i all that i you know the litany that i laid out earlier and then at the end of the year i think people really took action much of america rose up and said hell no we won't go we will not go the direction of um, Derek Chauvin. We will not become a Derek Chauvin nation. We will not become or give over, give ourselves over to that. We are going to say no to it. And we did that by saying no to another uh, term of Donald Trump, many of us, but the majority of the evangelical church still didn't. They still said yes to that. And in fact, it's not even just the ev evangelical church. It's actually the majority of the church of the white church in America, whether it was Catholic, mainline or evangelical, voted for a Derek Chauvin nation in the shadow of George Floyd's death. So when you realize that, like that the majority of people who have, of European descent in America said they want white power, they want to maintain their, their supremacy, their um, hegemony in this nation, then it's not surprising that we got to January 6th. I mean, all you need then, you don't need the majority to stand up and, and storm the Capitol. You just need the activated ones. You need the extremist ones to carry the flag for their friends who are sitting in the pews, right? So who aren't going to get out there and carry a flag, but who vote for them. That's where we are right now. We had thousands thousands of pastors and board members and NGO members, like people who run nonprofits, showed up with Jesus, white Jesus signs, the cross and the flag always brought together and nooses and stormed the Capitol, breaking down doors and windows, killing upwards of seven people, definitely five and I've heard the number seven recently by someone I trust. And so when I look back at that moment, I know that that didn't just happen. It happened because the base of the Republican Party is the evangelical church, the white evangelical church. By and large, though, you could also say that the base of the Republican Party has been white men, white women, Yeah. that the Democratic Party has become made up of pretty much everybody else, and those few awakened, not woke, but awakened white people of, of European descent who have lived immersed in other cultures and so have eyes to see the reality of these structures and systems historically. And, and also they see how their, their peace is connected to the peace of all. And so they vote in their own interests, actually, for expansive inclusion 
in this thing we call America, this democracy. And so what I, what I think we've come to is I think we've come to this moment now in 2022 where the backlash, we have already suffered the backlash. The backlash kind of came up as a storm in, in, in January 6th, on January 6th. And then for the next year in 2022, 2021, and then better part of 2022, you had the right, the extreme right, not only pushing forward um, legislation that outlawed certain books, that outlawed the teaching of critical race theory, which nobody's teaching critical race theory in kindergarten classes or third grade or sixth grade. This is literally a law school concept that nobody was teaching. I have been speaking and teaching and learning about issues of race and ethnicity and equity in the context of the Bible for like three decades. It has been the Bible that has taught me all that I know. And then a few books, a few good books, but those good books were by people of faith, people of evangelical faith, no less. John Perkins, Brenda Salter McNeil, Carl Ellis, and other really great people who have discipled and, and mentored me in the context of an evangelical world, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, like John Hotchavar, white man, um, who who taught me a lot about justice on the con in the context of an urban mission project, right in Chicago. So I think that what we what we have come to now is we've come to this moment where many within the white church have spent the whole last year feeling very justified about their stance against CRT and their stances against race. And this, they just feel like the whole George Floyd thing was just too much. We got to push that back. But what they haven't realized is that by pushing it back, they're also aligning themselves with people who have a vision for this nation that is only white. They are not just white supremacists. To be a white supremacist is to believe that you are above all others, but they are white nationalists. And white nationalists believe that only you are allowed or should be allowed to be in that space, that there is no place for anyone else in that society. So the white nationalist actually has as their vision, ethnic cleansing. And people of color understood this. We understood this when we saw them at the border. Um, we saw these ethnic cleansing policies being enacted by the last administration. When you, saw, when you saw six children die in the custody of ICE and how they were being treated like animals, when you see thousands and thousands of people being turned away at the borders who were legal asylum seekers, and, and there were, I mean, how many others? Good people on both sides, right? So with, with Charlottesville, I think that the moment that we're in right now is really, it's really become a come to Jesus moment for the church, more so, maybe in a more dire place than we were even in 2020, because the right, the extreme right has actually carved out the road, the path that the church can take if it chooses away from Brown Jesus. Were you, not that I want to, you know, continue on, but I, I do think this is actually a really relevant and important um, topic, especially for white Christians. Were you surprised by how things recently turned out in the election? Was that a, I don't want to use the word hopeful, but I mean, many candidates who were supported by Trump ended up not winning, which I felt was a, a good thing. So I'm just kind of curious. And also Florida. And anyway, I'm just curious. Well, I think, no, I was, I, I, I was, let me see, was I surprised? 
I was relieved. I was not surprised because I and a lot of other people were working for that, for that result. And so I think that I was praising God, let's put it that way. We prayed, we talked to our neighbors. I held conversations about the issues at hand on my kitchen table conversations, you know, on Instagram live every Friday night. You know, we we had the hard conversations. The Ally Tour brought together women, powerful women, and then hundreds of women across the country sat in on those, mostly from the suburbs. And the suburbs are really what got us where we got last in this last election, last two elections. White women in the suburbs, and not only white women, but really suburban, because 30% of the suburbs now are people of color. So we got to say that. The suburbs are a, a geographical area that exists in order to disconnect, that people move to the suburb, suburbs so that they're not quite so connected as people are in the city. They want more space. They tend to have live more more isolated in their own their own homes. They invite people into their home who they want to be in their home. They get in their car and don't really have to associate with anybody they don't want to associate with. Unlike in a city where if you're going to go outside of your house, you're going to interact with people you don't know who is going to be there. And you normally have to share space. And if you're going to have green space, it's not going to be your backyard. Usually it'll be a public park. So there's much more understanding of how systems and structures impact the whole, the whole community in a city. So, you know, for that reason, the suburbs have generally been a more conservative area, an area that has not been for progressive. And let's, I don't want to put this in, in political terms as much as to say the suburbs has not been an area that has envisioned radical connectedness because it's not really, it hasn't been the desire of the people who are there to be radically connected. Shalom is about the radical, radical, overwhelming wellness of all of the relationships in creation between God and humanity, between genders, all genders, between humanity and the rest of creation, between all of creation and the way things work, the systems that govern us. And what we know about Shalom is that it happens when there is truth telling. It happens when there is repair and reparation. It happens when there is restoration and restitution. It happens when there is welcome. It happens when there is equity. It happens when there is justice, when things are as they should be. And it happens when love is the tie that binds us all of us together. But most of the major shootings and you might even say modern day lynchings that have happened to people of African descent in the last decade have happened in suburbs. That George Floyd was a suburb. I think that suburban women in particular have been awoken. They have, they have woken up and they have seen that they have power and they have a voice and they don't want this. And Maybe it's not so bad to be connected. In fact, maybe it even gives more life than we had in our seclusion before. Maybe we can even have a richer life if we join hands and figure out how to do this thing in a different way. And I think that that really, that, that new vision of a new way to live together has actually permeated many suburbs and it's begun to turn the tide. It comes back to one of the themes in your sermon, which, which is shalom, the, the fullness and the connectedness that we're being awakened to that, yeah. that we need one another for, for full flourishing. And, 
you have a great quote in there. You say, it, it happens when love is the tie that binds us together. And I love that so much. But I often think we think of love as this fluffy, sentimental, romantic feeling, as opposed to this like, can be hard, difficult work. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about what does that love look like? Like the real Christian love that isn't greeting cards and and hearts and all of that. Like what are tangible things that love looks like to help create that shalom you're talking about? Yeah, well, the image that I have, I mean, really comes from the study that I did of Genesis 1. And when I began to understand that when God looks around and says that everything that God had made was very good, tob me ode, that tob is actually located between the things, not inside of the things. That the original Hebrews would have heard, who have heard that passage would have understood that the goodness that God was talking about was the goodness between humanity and God, the goodness between humanity and the rest of creation, the goodness between all of creation and the systems and structures and the way things work, that there was only blessing, there was no cursing on the first page of the Bible. And so with that understanding of what very goodness is, then you begin to understand that when God looked around and got so excited about what God saw, that the most radical form of goodness between things is love. That's the nuclear version of good ethics. It is love because it's not neutral. It's positive action. It's care. It's truth telling. It's reciprocity. It's justice. And all justice is, is when things are as they should be. Mm -hmm. That's all justice is. It's when things are as they should be, right? When we look around and we ask the question of, what does it look like to have a society knit together by love? Then we just, all we need to do is we need to ask, actually, we need to do just as the Good Samaritan did, which is what Jesus says. Doesn't Jesus say this? Jesus says, if you do as the Good Samaritan did, you're going to be good. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to be well. Now, what did the Good Samaritan do? The Good Samaritan chose to love without limits on who they would love and on how much they would love. So given the choice, this Samaritan is the only one in the equation in that in that story that Jesus tells who does not walk to the side who does not step over to the other side and try to avoid the problem or who doesn't beat up the man right there's two reactions to this this man actually likely a Jewish man who was standing in the middle of the road the reason we say that that he's, he was likely Jewish is because when you're in an in group and you're telling a story you don't specify what that person was because everybody assumes that person was just like you you specify people who are not like you hence he names the Samaritan a Samaritan, right? So everybody else in that story is Jewish. So if the Samaritan loves so lavishly someone who was his claimed, like vowed ethnic enemy, then how much more then would it look like for us to love in public, to love not only by giving money to charity, but rather by asking you know, why is that corner that that Samaritan got beat up on, you know, so damned? Why are there like streams of people getting beat up on that corner? And they really were actually, even in that story. This is the King's Highway he was talking about, which was notorious people getting jumped and jacked, right? Like, well, why is it that that we have in this particular area, we have 
so many drug runners. What's going on? Maybe there's no light. Maybe literally there's no street lights. So it's darker. So people have darkness covers. I mean, creates cover for all kinds of evil, right? Maybe we need to have more street lights. Maybe we need to have more community-based public safety. Maybe we need to have better schools in that area because then you'll have kids who actually are challenged and thrilled to be in school. And maybe we need more teachers in those schools who are qualified to teach and don't have emergency credentials. And by the way, maybe we need more books in that school because right now they don't have books at all because all the funding has been siphoned off to other things. So now they're using mimeograph sheets and who even remembers what a mimeograph is, but they still have those mimeograph sheets in that school that is two blocks from where I live right now. If that, if we dealt with that, then we would have more public safety. Wow. Yeah. Not just policing. You see what I'm saying? So love looks like figuring out how do we create safety and enough for all versus how do I get mine? You just hit on an area that I feel is, at least in my experience, really important for the white church because oftentimes, again, in my experience in the white church, oh, can we write a check? Can we just make a donation to that? Versus even if it's like gathering food, which again, not a bad thing. I'm not saying raising, you know, getting food and giving it to the food pantry is bad or writing a check to a nonprofit, but I'm saying, why? What's going on that we have to do that? Let's, let's dig a little deeper. That's exactly right. And the real question is, why do we need a food pantry in the first place? Right. Why do we need, like, why is there a need for this youth center that does educational services? I want you to give that check to that educational center. We need that. I used to be an educational specialist, like a teaching specialist at an educational center like that in the heart of LA. And we needed those checks. But what we really need is we needed better schools for our young people because then they wouldn't need me to have that to give a supplemental education that really is not going to count when it comes to time for colleges and taking the SAT and, and getting into the best colleges that set them up. Here's the question we need to ask. If we believed and imagined that God had placed the image of God in every single human being in our nation, that the image of God lives inside of every single human being. And if we understood that what that means, according to Genesis 1, is that that person who holds the image of God is called by God, divinely called, and created with the capacity, all things being equal, to exercise agency and stewardship of the world. If we really believed that, then we would do everything in our power through our public assets to make sure they are prepared to flourish, that the image of God is prepared to flourish. We would do that by making sure they had great schools, making sure that they had great health care that could make sure that they don't fall into the, the gaps that lead to early death through diabetes and heart disease and all the other things. We would make sure that their environments are protected from toxic dumping. We would make sure that they have access to good jobs and transportation to get there. We would make sure that there's sanitation in their parts of the city, that the street cleaners come through and sweep up all of the places where the image of God rests, and that 
There are no such thing as deadbeat landlords in cities that don't come in and actually fix dwellings for, for poor people. There would be no poor people because we would make sure that everybody is getting at least a living wage. That's what you do when you love your neighbor. That's what you do when you love the neighbor you'll never meet. You make sure that they will have at least what they need in order to flourish. If we believed, really believed that they have the image of God in them, we would do that. But the problem is that we don't. We live in a racialized society that has said explicitly at some points and implicitly now, um, and really under kind of whispers now, that some people are just not as valuable as other people. Some people are created to rule and others are created to be ruled. He knows that the powers that govern that city, this beautiful brown, physically brown, politically black city, this colonized city, this serially enslaved people, that the powers are colluding with empire and plotting to kill him. One of my questions is related to that. I, I wonder what the obstacle for us is in the Shalom, pro creating Shalom process. And one of the other themes you talk about is empire. And it's so undergirded in, in all of the things you just named. And I'm wondering, I think especially for white Christians, how do we start untangling that so tightly woven knot? What are the ways in which we can understand what you're talking about in the multi-layered things and then start working to kind of displace the empire, unnerve the like what are what are some of those things? Well, honestly, I think that I mean I had an interest. I don't think this is actually just limited to white Christians. I think it's something that is kind of endemic in Western Christianity, quite honestly, because Western Christianity traces its roots back to Constantine. And since Constantine, um, we've had this issue within, within Christianity. Christianity became the religion of empire, whereas it didn't start there. It actually wasn't even European. <laughs> it was not a European religion. Believe that. It was not even Western. I mean, really think about that. But yet now when we ask who has the authority to tell you what the scripture says and what Christianity is, all of that power has been located in Europe. Mm, yeah. All of it, you know, Germany, Sweden, Switzerland, you know, uh, France, just, you know, England. I mean, these are the places that are the locuses of power that tell us what that brown colonized text mean. Now, tell me, how accurate of a, right, a read are we going to get when we get Caesar's read of a colonized text? Right. Right. So your, your question is a really good one. I think that when I think back to, actually, I need you to repeat the question. <laughs> I just realized I lost it. What I was just thinking like, what what stands in the way of us creating Shalom? And I think empire is uh, that one of the main things, right? And so how do we kind of untangle that? Yeah, yeah. sorry. So when I think back to um, how Constantine basically co-opted this brown colonized religion, this brown colonized faith, this brown colonized um, experience of the world, and he himself actually became the arbiter of what would go in, you know, in terms of what creeds would stand, what creeds would not. And then it became Europeanized, but not just Europeanized, imperialized, because it was then located, Christianity was located in the heart of empire. I think that we began to then look at empire as God's vehicle for the spreading of the good news. Oh my gosh, you cannot get further from the truth. Yes, yes, 
the Christi white Christianity, Western Christianity was spread across the world through imperialism, through slavery, but it, God didn't need that to do it. And in fact, deep in the heart of Africa, in Congo, they already had the scripture. They even already had a cathedral in Africa before the very first cathedral in Europe. People in, in the heart of Africa, down in the sub-Saharan area, they area region, they had the scripture. They had, they didn't, we didn't need slavery, in other words, to give us Jesus. Jesus, in fact, was, like we said, a Jewish man. He was a brown colonized man who his people identified more with the continent of Africa than with any other space. In fact, Africa is mentioned all over the Bible. And the only mention of Europe is when we talk about Rome and we talk about the, the New Testament with the, the spreading of the good news up into Europe, but it didn't start there. So empire, in order to understand why empire is not God's vehicle for spreading the good news of Jesus, um, you have to understand what empire is. God actually says to David and first to Saul, actually, when, when Saul comes to God and says, we need to build a temple. You know, we want to, I want to build you a temple, God. Let me build you a temple. And God says, no, I don't want a temple. Don't build me a temple. Why was he doing that? He was, first of all, they were saying, first they said, we want a king. Give us a king, God. We want to be like all the other, all the other countries. You know, we want to be like them, the nations. And, and God says, no, you don't need a king. I'm your king. Let me be the one who rules. Let me be the one who, who says, this is how we should live together, how you should live together. But a king will have their own mind. And then he says, they'll have to tax you. And then he says to David, he warns David, I think it's David and maybe Saul. He says, if you build that temple, you know, you're going to have to enslave your own people to do that. Don't do it. In other words, you're going to have to exploit the image of God on earth in order to build an empire. At the heart of God's governance are three economic pillars. Economic pillars, the Sabbath, the sabbatical year, and the year of Jubilee. At the heart of God's governance, when they enter into the promised land, this is the governance that God sets up. And what, what does that do? If you have a Sabbath and everybody in the nation, including the oxen and the grass, gets to rest on the Sabbath day, then that means that First of all, the image of God, no matter who they are, no matter how much debt they might, they might be in, they're going to have the right to rest, meaning the right to actually find flourishing in the world and not be exploited. It's protection from being exploited. And then the sabbatical year, every seven years, debts would be forgiven. Whoa, what? Like debts are forgiven every seven years? That's crazy. Can you imagine a world in America where all debt is forgiven every seven years? Like really think about that. Can you build an empire if that, is, that happens? If all debt, school debt, homeowning debt, credit card debt, if all debt is forgiven structurally and systemically in your nation, can your nation become an empire? No, the answer is no. So the way that God governed actually governed in a way that blocked the Jew, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people from becoming an empire. And then put on top of that, every 49 to 50 years, depending on who's, who's counting, every 49 years, 50 years, you have the year of Jubilee. 
And not only do people get to rest for the entire year, just like the sabbatical year, not only do you get debts free, but now you also get the returning of land to people who lost their debt over the course of those last 49 years and the freeing of all the people who have been indentured. They didn't really have slavery the way that we think of it, but all the people who have been indentured and enslaved since then right? So they all get set free. I ask you again, can you build an empire? Just think of one business. I mean, just think of like Apple. If Apple were to forgive all of the people who owe them any money for anything in one year, would they still be the empire that they are? Or they, could they have ever have built, if they started from the very beginning, could they have built to become Apple? No. Right. So you have to ask then the question of why did God govern in a way that blocked empire from being built in God's nation? I think it's because, and I think it's pretty clear in scripture, empires require the exploitation of the image of God. And the image of God, in order to flourish, must have freedom, must have agency, must have the ability to make choices and steward the world. And so, you know, we, we do, we have an empire. We are the Rome of today, but we happen to be also a democracy. And in that way, our capitalist society is balanced on some level by our democracy, by the ability for us to actually cast our votes. But right now, the democracy edge of it is actually being threatened in large part by people in the evangelical church who believe wholeheartedly in free market capitalism, which really, I hate to get into like a whole economics lesson here, and I'm not an economist by any measure, but I've had enough conversations with people who are, so I can you know share with you what they've said to me, that Adam Smith, who was like, you know, had the first seeds of, of capitalism, he had this whole theory around the capitalism, he believed in the sovereign hand of the market, you know, the invisible hand of God over the market. Because he, he lived in a very Calvinist society. He believed in predestination. And everybody in that society was also Calvinist in his, in his world. You know, he imagined a world where they're going to have the butcher and they're going to have the bread maker and they're going to have the, the farmer and everybody's work is actually feeding each other's. And so you have a society that works together. And everybody also believes in God. But what happens when you take that and take it and place it in the middle of an area that does not have the assumption of a good God in the center, does not have a sense of connectedness, in fact, becomes very disconnected, not only from the whole, but from God. What happens is the market becomes God. And that's what has happened. So we don't have the invisible hand of God over the market. We have God has been killed by the market. And now the market is God. I was gonna say it's the idolatry of the market. The market has become the idol. Yes. And so when you have the market as an idol, and the market becomes God to an entire stream of the church, then the economics that they then push is not balanced by democracy. And they are now literally trying to kill democracy. This was one of the reflections I had is, and now I'm going to even add to it, is power and money the opposite of shalom? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I no. No, <laughs> no, money may, money may be, but power is not. I mean, we see power on the first page of the Bible. We actually see on that very first page, very first chapter of the Bible, um, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, what it means to be human is to be given the call of God to exercise dominion in the world. 
agency. That requires power. What is evil is the exercise of that power in a way that crushes or starves the image of God, that fails to recognize, cultivate, and protect the image of God. That is evil. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. And that's the, that's the opposite of shalom. As we look to the future of, of Christianity and the church, what is your hope? What do you hope for the church? Oh, wow. You know, I had a, um, a group I interviewed for a documentary years ago that was celebrating the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation of the church. And they asked me if, yeah, the Reformation was the work of the church for the last 500 years, right? What's the work for the next 500 years? It just struck me immediately then it really is still the case. I believe the work of the next 500 years is the decolonization of the church and the decolonization of our faith. And it starts with that sermon, you know, that Luke sermon that I gave meeting Jesus, decolonizing Jesus, because Jesus himself has been colonized. In other words, Jesus has been controlled and exploited and taken out of Jesus' own clothes and put into the clothes of a European businessman, you know, <laughs> man bag and all, right? Like the, <laughs> you may as well have Jesus with a man bag. Like, you know, it's like, and, and sipping lattes at Starbucks. Like this is, this is the Jesus that we've been given today. And it's not Jesus. In fact, he didn't even yeah. speak English. No. It's amazing <laughs> how many Christians are surprised that Jesus wasn't white, that he wasn't Republican. Jesus wasn't Christian. What? No. <laughs> yeah. It's it's mind-blowing. To get back to who Jesus actually is. And, you know, thank you for, I mean, really like helping us to see through sermons and through your other work, really getting back to, to the nature of Jesus, to the context of Jesus' situation, what what his reality was like and what powers he was fighting at that time and, and really to show parallels how we feel like we've made so much progress and really we're we see so many parallels and so we thank you for your work and helping us to awaken and move forward as we work for a better world you know the world that god created and hopes for all of us so lisa sharon harper thank you so much thank you it's been really a joy and a pleasure and i hope that you all go out and read fortune you know, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Because in that book, we actually take it one step further and we ask the question, we go deep into one family's story of the experience of living in this empire, living under the weight of those oppressive systems and structures, and then ask the practical question of what is it going to take to heal us? To repair us. So yeah, I'd love to have that conversation later. Well, we hope to have more conversations, but in the meantime, peace and grace during this season. Thank you. God bless. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Together, we are what God looks like. The Collective Table is supported by San Diego United Methodist Church in Encinitas, California, and the California Pacific Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. A big thank you to our producer and content editor, Claire Watson. If you'd like to financially support the work of The Collective Table, please visit us at thecollectivetable.org. There you can also find out more about who we are and view past episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, YouTube channel, and newsletter. And keep up with us on our Instagram and Facebook at The Collective.